Hey, what's going on, Kyle? This is Shane Brown out here in my backyard garden in Wrightsville Beach, North Carolina, watching the bees do their magic. Love the podcast. Always enjoy listening to it when I'm out here working in the garden. Thanks. Keep up the good work. Thanks for sending that in, Shane. If any of you want to send me a little voice memo, you can record it on your phone and email it to info at kyle.surf. Just try and keep it under a minute, and I'd love to play it. I'm down here in Los Angeles, California. It's about 12.15 in the afternoon, and I have not eaten anything today. I'm fasting for 24 hours. I'm doing it because my buddy uh, Shane Heath, who runs Mudwater, fasts every single week. Um, once once a, a week, and he said that it's really helpful for mental clarity. Um, I figured, hey, it'd just make you hungry, but I tried it out a couple weeks ago, and it does work. There's a, a kind of laser focus that you get when you fast, um, and there's also a lot of time wasted when you're eating. That's one thing I've noticed thus far. If you're eating three meals a day, 30 minutes each meal, that's 90 minutes that you could be Spend it on Instagram or some other great way to spend your time. Uh, but I'll report back to you about how it goes. Um, you know, there was a study that came out that said that caloric restriction was one of the only uh, proven ways to increase lifespan, not only in humans, but across species. So cut back on the calories a little bit and uh, maybe you'll live longer. You know, also just when you think about the way that humans have lived for, you know, tens of thousands of years, it wasn't like we were sitting down to eat three meals every single day. We would feast on an animal, and then maybe we wouldn't eat again for another day or two. So it's not like you're going to starve if you skip a meal and then just make sure that what you put in your body is uh, not complete shit, and maybe it'll make you better. You know, it's funny how, how much just... Eating and even getting enough sleep really shifts your relationship to how you feel about yourself and how you feel about the world. Uh, a lot of times I will think that I am right and that the other person is wrong and that there is justification for why I am pissed off. And then it turns out I just didn't get a lot of sleep last night. We're a bunch of babies in adult bodies. Maybe there are babies that listen to this podcast, though. Maybe you're just a baby in a baby body. Anyway, I'm going to get this conversation going. But before I do, I wanted to let you know that um, as far as sleep goes, Dina's been really helping me. CBD and the company that sponsors each and every one of these podcasts, Santa Cruz Medicinals, makes CBD. They have a little CBD tincture. And I take a few drops before I go to bed, and my sleep is better. Straight up. And I can tell you that it's better because... Chris Ryan, who's doing the Motherfucker Awards with me, gave me one of these aura rings. Uh, So it's a ring that will show you your sleep score throughout the night. It connects to your phone, and it tells you how long you slept for, how much REM sleep you got. It's really cool. It really um, confirms a lot of the uh, suspicions I had about what alcohol does to my sleep. But it also confirms that if I take some CBD before I go to bed... I fucking sleep great. I don't feel as sore the next day. And uh, I really dig it. So if any of you guys want to try it out, you can go to scmedicinals.com and type in the code name KYLE10, all caps, and get some of this little CBD tincture. It's mint flavored, and I will uh, take some before I go to, before I, or after I eat dinner. And I really dig it. 
scmedicinals.com. Type in the code name Kyle10 to get yours today. I'm down here in La La Land for at least a month, maybe longer. Uh, booking comics, getting prepped for the MOFAs, which is on December 3rd. Uh, you can get your tickets now at MotherfuckerAwards.com. Jody Armour is one of the presenters this year. Uh, other presenters include Kelly Slater, Abby Martin. We've got a whole list of badass, just a, a wide range of uh, people that care and also have a dark sense of humor. Uh, we booked Sam Tripoli as one of the comedians. I'm really excited about that. Um, we've got Baron Vaughn as another. All kinds of good people. I'll be I'll be releasing a full list soon. But uh, December 3rd in L.A., get your tickets now. A little bit about Jody before I get this podcast going. Jody Armour is a Roy P. Crocker professor of law at the University of Southern California. He has been a member of the faculty since 1995. Armour's expertise ranges from personal injury claims to claims about the relationship between racial justice, criminal justice, and the rule of law. Armour studies the intersection of race and legal decision-making, as well as tort and tort reform movements. This was one of my favorite podcasts of all time. And without further ado, give it up for Professor Jody Armour. Kyle Chairman here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. Your uh, your hairdo isn't conducive to, uh, yes, to headphones. Yes, there, yes, this follicle fashion isn't what this, these headphones are for. That's for sure. The follicle fashion, my how, choice of in many ways. How long have you had the afro? Um, I have I've had the fro since I started writing my book, which is coming out next year. Um, the original title of my work was Nigga Theory: Transgressive Unsayable Word in a lot of settings and. So as I was writing that, and hopefully we can talk about the profane and the profound a little later, but as I was writing that book, um, I was on sabbatical, and that means that when I go into writing mode, there's no air, water, or food for me. You know, my kids used to run around the house saying, when Dad is writing, cemetery silence, cemetery silence. So I missed uh, nine months of trips to the barbershop. Didn't think about it very much. I wound up going back to school to start teaching my criminal law class after nine months, so my, my fro had grown out some, and my, um, louder? Yeah, just a little closer to the mic. Oh, okay. There you go. Yeah, so my, my fro had grown, grown out uh, uh, considerably by then, but not a whole lot, and I'd grown a little beard, and I overheard my students say that it's ironic that Professor Armour teaches criminal law while he looks like a criminal. And then um, I went downtown about three weeks after that to address some downtown attorneys about commercial transactions. And when I got back to the school, they had, I realized that they had called back to my colleagues and reported that Professor Armour's appearance is impertinent and unprofessional. So at that point, thanks to this wonderful institution called tenure, which means never having to say you're sorry for telling the truth, 
or expressing yourself in a, an honest way, I was able to say, grow, baby, grow. And I let it uh, really exuberantly grow into a big bat signal of solidarity for Black Lives Matter. Good for you, man. Yeah, uh, hairdo has been a political symbol for a long time. Yes. Since you know the 1960s, yes. uh, my uncle was a big fan of John Lennon and the anti-war movement and... Yes let it grow until uh, we bring the troops home. You know, you had an entire generation of kids growing yes. their hair out, taking LSD, and that really was that uh, symbol of solidarity um, back then as well. Oh, absolutely. And in the black political movement, uh, Black Panthers, for example, Don Froze basically let their follicle fashion speak to their, trans, you know, to their political message of fighting the status quo, fighting the powers that be, more currently, and Angela Davis is a famous, you know, iconic figure with her big fro. Uh, more recently, Colin Kaepernick rocks a big afro um, as part of his political discourse when he's kneeling at the same time the national anthem is playing in protest of police misconduct and brutality. So, yeah, you know, fashion, actually not just hair fashion, but fashion in general can have a strong political edge to it. Going back to 1770s when, you know, we didn't quite have Americans, the proto-Americans who were fighting the Revolutionary War, decided that they didn't want to wear uniforms. Rather, they wanted to wear, fight in their shirt sleeves because uniforms suggested hierarchy. And they were fighting for democracy, the opposite of hierarchy. Um, Trayvon Martin, when he was killed by George Zimmerman, um, uh, LeBron James and the Miami Heat put on hoodies and started putting, say, hoodies up. In, in solidarity with Trayvon Martin. So fashion, whether it's hair fashion or clothes fashion, often acts as a, operates as a political symbol. Yeah. There's a, uh, an old stoic named Cato, and uh, he, there were stories about Cato walking around uh, the city in a purple tunic, and he would be ridiculed for wearing a purple tunic, and he did it as a mental exercise to only be embarrassed about things that he should truly be embarrassed about. Yeah, that's a, the spiritual dimension, right? It can not only have a political message, it can also be a spiritual expression and help you to be reminded of the things that really matter, as he was talking about. So, yeah, I think that sometimes we think that uh, fashion is just something superficial, and it can be, but it can also be profoundly substantive, too, if, you, if it's approached in the right way. Yeah, yeah, and to to challenge um, challenge your own discomfort. Um, even even today, there's a, a real well known podcaster named Tim Ferriss, and he's like this life hacker type dude. And he he was the one who referenced the story of Cato, and he says that even today, what he recommends people do is walk outside for one day and draw a rectangle on their forehead, yeah. and just walk around the day with a rectangle on your forehead and see how you are treated differently yes. and just feel that for a day. And I think that, that um, those little acts can be profound because, you know, you realize uh, for coming from me, you know, I'm a, a coastal white kid growing up as a surfer. Um, there are various uh, preconceived notions about me, but not the same that people will, will preconceive about you, you yes. know, walking down the street. And uh, I think that it can be, it's a really good exercise to um, 
be able to experience that. Well, I'll give you an example of how differently I was treated once I grew the Afro as against how I was treated before I grew it. When I, before I grew it, I looked a lot more like Obama, right? Um, after I grew it, not only did I have these stories with my students say it's ironic, he teaches criminal law and looks like a criminal, or colleagues being told it's impertinent and unprofessional, I'm standing down in JW Marriott. I'm meeting a roommate of mine. I'm a, I'm a product of a better chance, which takes kids out of inner city areas and puts them in boarding schools where they have a better chance of going to college. And my roommate in a better chance was a guy named Lino Garcia. I hadn't seen him for years. He was in L.A. We reconnected. He was the uh, general manager of ESPN Deportes at that point. And so we drank, uh, you know, a toast to innocence, a toast to time, you know, opened the time capsule, went back 20 years, 25 years. And um, as I was leaving, I was approached by three guards in the lobby of J.W. Marriott. I, now, I was in regular dress slacks, hard shoes, button-up shirt, and a jacket. I did not have a tie, but otherwise I looked like I'd go to teach class many days. And the three guards approached me. They sent the black one over to me, and the two white ones stood back. And the black one came up to me and said, Sir, are you here to see someone? And I said, Well, yes, I am, but why aren't you approaching anyone else in the lobby? This is a big lobby, a lot of people in the lobby. He said, Well, sir, we've been having a problem with transients, right, i.e. homeless people. And I knew what he was implying, but I wanted to hear him actually say it. So I said, as a lawyer, I wanted to hear him utter the words. So I said, you're saying I look like a transient? And he said, well, sir, don't take it personally. He walked away. At that point, I, would, I was on, I just trying to join Twitter back in those days. So I started tweeting about this. And nice thing about teaching law for 20 years by this point was that a lot of my former students are now practicing attorneys at big downtown firms. So I called one of them at Latham Watkins, and I said, I know he's not going to come back, but just in case he does, I want you to be on the phone if the guard approaches me again. They came back about two and a half minutes later, and he said, sir, what is the name of the guest you're here to see? Now, as a criminal law attorney and as a tort professor, I can characterize that transaction for you legally. What he was saying was, if I didn't give them the name of a person that they could find in their guest database, I had assumed the, uh, the status of a trespasser, and they were about to eject me. I had assumed the ejectable status of a trespasser, and they were about to lay hands on me and throw me out of that lobby. So, you know, fashion isn't just about self-expression sometimes. Fashion can be about how you can safely navigate the world or not. Oof. And what ended, what ended up happening? Well, I was, put, I was put in a position that black people were put in hundreds of thousands of times a day in America. I had one of two choices and only one of two choices available to me at that moment. I either give him the name of Lino Garcia, confirm his stereotypes about me, vindicate his perceptions of me, swallow the indignity, suffer that spirit murder in its own right, more than a microaggression. When you get enough of these, it really robs you of your spiritual vitality, either that on, one, on the one hand, or on the other hand, tell him to go fuck himself, right? Those are the only two choices. And if I, and the, if I go with that latter choice, I'm going to wind up in the back of a cruiser, right? So uh, there's going to be indignity either way. And on that occasion, because I'd had other encounters with 
the, you know, police in the past about things like this, and I did not want to wind up on the 6 o'clock news, you know, with uh, the broadcaster, with the anchor, rather, saying USC law professor arrested for, you know, a battery, because if you laid hands on me, we were, there's going to be a tussle. You know, I'm not going to swallow that much indignity. And now I'm winding up in a cage. And, they, you know, one thing they will take your tenure about is any kind of criminal activity or criminal charges. So the only way I saw forward that I could continue to do the work I'm doing was to swallow that indignity on that occasion, give him Lino's name, but there's not a day that doesn't go by, that there's not a day that rather goes by that I don't feel some twinge of regret for giving him that name. I can understand how someone like Sandra Bland, when she decided that she was not going to swallow the indignity, wound up getting jailed and, you know, arguably took her own life, even if she did take her own life after she was thrown in jail for doing nothing but standing on her constitutional rights, exercising like I would tell any of my students to who are taking any of my criminal law courses for that act, for being for being bold enough to think that she was an American citizen who could stand on her constitutional rights. She was thrown in a jail cell. Perhaps she took her own life. I'm going to assume for the sake of argument that she did. But preceding that suicidal act was the spirit murder by that officer to drag her out of that car and lock her up and put her in a jumpsuit. So I think there, even if her act was an act of self-destruction, there was social oppression in that self-destruction and that, uh, that that officer was responsible for. So that, that it just keeps me reminded of all of that, which is one of the reasons I continue to rock this for when I, when I teach and when I speak. Yeah. Yeah, it keeps you uh, connected to it. Yep. That's exactly it. You know, even though I, it shows you can't age out of profiling. You know, you would think that profiling is something that happens to young blacks. Now, here I am, you know, I'm a cheered professor, Roy P. Crocker at SC, been cheered for 20 years plus. You know, I have three sons all out of college now and, you know, uh, gainfully employed, et cetera, right? I live in, in what's called, the LA Times called Black Beverly Hills View Park, you know, an upper middle class black neighborhood. But like Stevie Wonder said in one of his most trenchant lyrics, you might make big cash, but you cannot cash in your face. And the face of crime for many Americans is black. Hmm. Um, wh- what would you say are the differences between uh, conflict and unresolved conflict? Because I think what I'm hearing, um, you know, is that there is there's conflict, right? And a lot of people want to uh, say that, that conflict doesn't exist by saying things like um, I'm colorblind. You know, I don't I don't see race. I don't want to engage in that uncomfortable conversation um, that's, that someone like I do, a white person, needs to engage in. Um, what are the differences between engaging in, what are the differences between this conflict that we see and just unresolving it? Does that make sense at all? Yeah, yeah. You know, first, it, it's worth considering the, the, the canard that we can be colorblind, right? You, one of the first things you notice about a person walking down the street toward you is their race. A lot of times you'll notice their race before you can even notice what, know what gender they are, right? Um, to deny that 
is to deny that there may be both conscious and unconscious mental processes that are triggered when you see somebody of another race. Some of my early scholarship had to do with the cognitive unconscious and unconscious bias and how it is that a lot of well-intentioned, otherwise racially liberal people can unconsciously discriminate against others without any conscious awareness of doing it, right? But it happens nonetheless. Um, for example, one set of studies had, uh, uh, they had subjects watch two people have an interaction. And at the end of the interaction, one of them bumps the other in an ambiguous way. It could be horseplay and dramatizing and innocuous, or it could be violent and hostile or aggressive. They could have looked either way. And they found that when they controlled for every other variable, what they were wearing, what they actually said, the way they stood, that when they controlled for every other variable, when the, some, when the person initiating the ambiguous bump was white, they systematically tended to interpret the bump as innocuous and dramatizing in horseplay. When he, the person initiating the bump was black, they systematically interpreted it as hostile or aggressive. Now, these people weren't necessarily bigots. They, in fact, both blacks and whites interpreted that way. Even young kids, as young as seven and eight years of age, made that same systematic discrimination in how they interpreted the ambiguous bump because stereotypes are well-learned associations that are established in our memory from a very early age, like the little white girl who said in the New York Times piece when she saw a black infant, she said, look, a three-year-old black infant, she said, look, mom, a baby maid. Now, that three-year-old white girl isn't a bigot. She's not prejudiced. She has, she's just reporting on an association that's been forged in her memory between women from a certain social group and an occupation she typically sees them in. She may be reach the age of judgment, say 18, and come to renounce that as an appropriate way to think about black women. But that doesn't mean that habit, that mental habit, that well-learned association disappears. Uh, overnight, right? She Now she has two different cognitive structures, both her personal standards for how she ought to respond, which may be egalitarian and race neutral, but the unconscious one, the automatic one. To understand un automatic, unconscious processes, think about when you learn to drive a car. When you first get behind the wheel, every maneuver requires intention, attention, and effort. How do you do Steering the wheel, hitting the gas, hitting the brakes, it takes a lot of effort. When I teach my kids how to drive a stick, a manual, for example, I always rent a car because I know there's going to be a learning curve in which initially all of the associations and maneuvers are going to be hard to learn. But with enough practice, with enough repetition, they become automatic. You can do them without any conscious effort because they become part of your cognitive unconscious. You can drive down the street riding a stick shift, talking to somebody about health care reform because they're in your automatic processes. And some, you can leave your garage sometimes, um, pull out, and wind up and work and forget how you got there, not even be aware of how you got there because you made all the turns automatically because they were part of your cognitive unconscious. That's how stereotypes are. They're mental habits that can run automatically without our conscious awareness. And whether they're about gender or race or any other, marker of social marginality. They, they can compel us to discriminate even when we're trying not to. And we got to recognize that in order to deal with it. To take an ostrich head in the sand approach to that is to deny the reality of everyday bias against uh, outgroups. What would you recommend? Uh, let's just take me as an, as an example. Uh, I'm walking down the street. 
Uh, I grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood. Uh, I see a black guy walking towards me and I notice myself tense up a little bit. Yes. What are the set of questions you would recommend that I ask myself in that moment of unconscious bias? Yes, that I can control my mental habit. Recognize that you have a mental habit. That doesn't make you a bad person. We all have mental habits. We all grew up in a cultural belief system that was replete with, saturated with negative stereotypes, right? So you are just a creature of habit, like we all are creatures of habit. And so at that moment, you can say, I want to control this habit, this mental habit of mine. And as you know, when it comes to controlling any habit, it takes intention, attention, and effort to control it. Conscious, like if you bite your fingernails whenever you're sitting in front of the television, you want to break that habit. Whenever you sit in front of the television, you have to consciously call to mind your new resolution for how you're going to respond when you're in front of that television, how you're not going to start chomping on those nails. So by the same token, when you're walking down the street, you see somebody from this stereotype group coming from you, you're having this automatic habitual response. You have to tell yourself, I'm not going to succumb to that habit. I'm going to control myself, my, my automatic responses, and I'm going to, in the name of egalitarianism or in the name of equality, in the name of being the kind of person I want to be, who treats everybody fairly and on the up and up, I am going to control this mental habit, and I'm not going to let it get the best of me. Right. Um, In other words, color consciousness, not color blindness, is mm -hmm. what you need to practice. You need to not try to, t to deny that you are a creature of habit, that you're human, but rather wrap your arms around your humanity, recognize it, and combat it through color consciousness. Yeah. No, there's a real terror in our society of being called a racist. Yes. And that terror... Uh, makes it very difficult to engage with these kinds of topics in any capacity. Yes. I mean, I even feel it right now, like yeah. engaging this conversation, not wanting to sound racist in any way, trying, yeah. I, like, I want to frame up these questions in a way yes. that will make me sound well-informed and not racist, which is, a, it's more difficult than if we were just having any other kind of conversation. Yes, and the, I think the key to start to getting a handle on that is to recognize there's a difference between stereotypes and prejudice. That's how I talk about it in some of my scholarship, that stereotypes are these mental habits. These, they're these well-learned sets of associations that are established in our memory from a very early age and can run automatically without our conscious awareness. Whereas prejudice is a personal belief system. that you have that it, ha it reflects your personal standards for how you ought to respond to the world. A lot of people who are non-prejudiced, who don't have bigoted beliefs about others, conscious beliefs, who really try to be fair and egalitarian, are nonetheless have, nonetheless have stereotypes established in their memories. They nonetheless automatically and unconsciously respond to people who are different in a discriminatory way. So there's, not, it, it, there's nothing wrong with acknowledging that you have these mental habits and, but, and embracing the fact that you are striving to be a person who is tolerant, who is open-minded, and that in trying to be that kind of person, you're going to have to combat some of these mental habits, some of these stereotypes have. So there's a big difference between stereotypes and prejudice, just in all of us, even 
black folks have a lot of stereotypes about other black folks that they have to fight. When some of these tests, I was, um, some of these experiments I was telling you about, when they have the ambiguous bump by the white versus the black person, and when they're black, they tend to interpret it as negative and white as innocuous. Both black and white subjects have that same reaction. So it's something that we all learn. That doesn't mean that the black people are prejudiced against black people. They're not prejudiced against their own brothers and sisters and uncles and uncles and aunts and children, right? But they don't have any prejudice against them, but they still have unconscious biases that we all develop living in the kind of cultural belief system we do. Mm-hmm. And let's take it to prejudice. There are a lot of people with prejudices. Let's say that I grew up in a home uh, with a racist dad. Let's say that my sister was uh, raped by a black guy. Yes. Right? That's going to create a lot of prejudices in my mind. And then yeah. maybe I'm more openly racist. Yeah. How, what are ways to deal with that? Yeah, well, now you're talking about appealing to some people, to, to folks on, uh, on the basis of the higher angels of their nature. You know, uh, Clarence Darrow was asked to come out of retirement back in the 1920s when a black man moved into a white suburban neighborhood of Detroit and he was greeted by a neighborhood improvement association of about 200 whites who wanted him out of that neighborhood. Uh, And the next night, um, about 500 came and, and urged him to get out of that neighborhood. Well, he holed up in the house with his wife, his child, and some uh, family members and an ample supply of ammunition and guns. And so when, they, when the crowd lurched toward the house on the second night, he shot over their head. He said he intended to shoot over their head, but he hit someone in the crowd, caused their death, and then everyone in the house was arrested and charged with murder, except the baby. Everyone was charged with murder. And Clarence Darrow came out of retirement to represent him. And Clarence Darrow said to the jury, and back in these days, you have that all-white, all-male jury, and he's arguing for this guy, black man's life. And he, uh, Dr. Ocean Sweet was his name, the, the black uh, defendant on trial. And Clarence Darrow, in his closing argument, appealed to the jury to think about who, who, what their life would be like if they were black. You know, would they have black dreams? He said, if you went out here on this street right now and had your leg cut off by a streetcar, would you rather have your leg cut off by a streetcar or be black? And he knew that the answer to that jury is they'd rather have their leg cut off than be, be, have to sat, be saddled with the burden of that particular social identity. And he said, you know, finally, who are we as Americans? Let me appeal to your higher principles. You know, you may have some prejudices, but on a higher level, what does that flag mean? Didn't, what, what did the blood that those revolutionary soldiers fought for, what did that really mean? Weren't they fighting against hierarchy? Weren't they fighting against uh, oppression? And if we really wrap ourselves around, uh, wrap the flag around ourselves and wrap ourselves, our arms around what it means to be an American, then we should want to stand in solidarity with this black man trying to protect his home and his family. And so that's what you have to do. Try to, try to I think, appeal to people beyond their prejudices and, 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 and on the basis of their deeper values. Because I think a lot of us have deep values that are, in some ways, recognize humans as humans. And, and the human you know, family as, as, as fundamentally 
uni- you know, on some level unified in some way. And it's, it's not, it's not going to be easy. It's often going to be hard. You know, it's not, a, it's not an easy transi- transition. And it's going to take friends and family, you know, to, to urge you in that direction. And maybe, you know, it's going to ha- take you exposing yourself to books and, 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 and literature, um, uh, movies. Um, and that's really what, kind of what Black Lives Matter has been about, right? Now, that, that, that's a trigger for a lot of people, Black Lives Matter. Right? But the point of Black Lives Matter, they, they had really and have two hallmarks to their methodology. One, shut it down. We need to cut through our complacency about the marginalization of blacks and the, and the suffering that blacks are currently experiencing, even though many people don't think that's the case. If you don't think that there is still discrimination in America, go down to Skid Row here in, Cal- in L.A., and you'll, what you'll see is that 75% of those people in Skid Row, which is really one of the most miserable places in this nation, are black. Go into San Quentin with me, and you'll see that 60%, 50 60% of the prisoners, staggering numbers, are black. The, the two most miserable places in this country, the, our prisons and our, our, our Skid Rows, are grossly disproportionately populated by black folk. So if you don't think there's still discrimination today, then you have to, you have to really ignore all the evidence of your senses. And so it, the number one point of Black Lives Matter is shut it down. Let's cut through our common complacency, our collective complacency about the marginalization, oppression of our black brothers and sisters, number one. And then number two, and the second, after we've shut it down, uncomfortable conversations. Let's have some uncomfortable conversations so that we can get to what, what really matters and get to the humanity in all of us. It, it, black Lives Matter doesn't mean only Black Lives Matter. Some critics have tried to caricature it in that way. What, what, it, what it's really saying is Black Lives Matter too. Black Lives Matter also. That too or also is implied. It's just left out. Right. It's not that only black lives matter. Of course not. What if once black lives start to matter in America, all lives are going to matter because, like I said about Skid Row, those black lives are the faces at the bottom of the well. Once those those lives start to matter, a a lot of other lives are going to have to matter at the same time, you know. So there are the questions that we can ask each other and ask ourselves. There are the uncomfortable conversations that we can have. There's also the political apparatus that sucks a lot of folks into these systems and makes it very difficult for them to get a second chance. Um, and you know, in the Motherfucker Awards this yes. year, a lot of what we're uh, pointing out in the spirit category for outstanding efforts to break the human spirit, which we're really excited to have you yes. present, we are um, in a humorous way pointing out those apparatus uh, apparatuses that um, yes. get, you know, uh, a young black kid who makes a mistake into this system and makes it very difficult to get out of it. Um, and on some levels, this is also a spiritual conversation because um, it is, it's, a, it's a conversation about does our system um, embody our highest principles? Does it embody empathy? Does it embody, or does it embody vengeance? Yes. Um, and through the through the 90s, you know, through the the Clinton administration, there were a lot of laws that were put in place that represented vengeance. You know, three strikes and you're out. 
um, yeah. mandatory minimum sentence for nonviolent drug offenses. Um, and it was, it was appealing to a certain sense in us. Uh, what you have been doing and, and spending a lot of your time and your life doing is responding to this apparatus. Um, will you describe it a little bit uh, sure. for people that might not know about how it, how it works um, and then point out some chinks in the armor and ways that we can respond to that? Absolutely. Um, the book I have coming out next year with LARB Books titled Unsayable Words, Unforgivable Crimes is about this very issue of how we have for 30 years approached crime and punishment on the basis of retribution, retaliation, and revenge. That's been this retributive urge is how we've responded to wrongdoers generally. And I've been arguing that we need to all change that and move in the direction of reconciliation, restoration, and redemption, recognizing that people have the capacity for redemption, even those who've done wrong things, um, wrongful things. And um, one of the, the reason I've used the N-word in so much of my scholarship, right, is because, uh, partly because I think a comedian, a comic routine, really used it in an effective way to shine a light on the politics of respectability that has driven how we think about criminals, even within the black community. Chris Rock, in one of his famous routines that launched his comedic career um, in front of an all-black or just about all-black audience, walked back and forth in front of the stage. And this video, I, we used to go into black homes and was in everyone's black, uh, all these various black homes. And you walk back and, front and, back and forth on the stage saying roughly this, I'll try to paraphrase as much as I can remember of the kickoff, the beginning part of the routine. It's like a civil war going on in black America. And there's two sides. There's black people and there's niggas. And niggas have got to go. I love black people, but I hate niggas. Boy, I wish they'd let me join the Ku Klux Klan. Shit, I do a drive-by from here to Brooklyn. And he continued on in that vein for 30 minutes, demonizing his, what, it, what his core definition of a N-word of a nigga was a black person who does a crime, right? So according to his definition, the up to 90% of young black males in some of these inner city neighborhoods who are going to wind up in jail, on probation, or on parole at some point in their lives are condemnable niggas. Are you, uh, how comfortable should we feel laughing at a punchline that relegates that staggering number of our own youth to niggerdom, to moral to being moral outcasts and social pariahs. But back in those days when he did that routine, the audience was laughing, rolling in the aisles, amening, you know, and all the rest. They were accepting the invitation implicit in a lot of comedy. When you, make, when you make a joke like that, you're inviting a distinction between us and them. The them is, are in the butt of the joke, right? The us are the ones who are laughing at them. And the political us-them invitation in that joke was between the law-abiding us and the criminal them. And we are going to niggerize them and make, uh, make them the butt of our joke, right? That's the politics of respectability, the, the good Negro, bad Negro distinction. And that helped fuel mass incarceration. And that's why I use that word in my own scholarship as a critique of that mentality. 
And so if we're going to take on mass incarceration, we're going to have to humanize those people that we've otherized or niggerized in that way. And I've, I've, a lot of my writing for this book and my other uh, uh, work in this area has been aimed at finding ways to humanize the not only non, low-level nonviolent drug offenders, but even the violent criminals. Uh, Michelle Alexander uh, said in her uh, famous book, very important book, The New Jim Crow, um, likens mass incarceration to Jim Crow and says, oh, mass incarceration, racialized mass incarceration is the new Jim Crow. It's a form of social oppression like the old Jim Crow segregation was a form of social oppression. The problem with saying that, though, is a lot of people don't see the, a moral equivalence between the victims of old Jim Crow, like Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King, and Medgar Evers, who were innocent Negroes who were suffering social oppression, and those people who are part of the new Jim Crow, that is, people who are locked up in jail cells because they've committed violent offenses oftentimes and preyed on sometimes the most vulnerable members of their own community. A lot of people don't see the moral equivalence, in other words, between Medgar Evers, Martin Luther King, and Rosa Parks on the one hand, and a gangbanger, drug dealer, and prostitute on the other, right? Because they just see there's a huge moral gulf between the two in their minds. And so a lot of my scholarship is about bridging that gap between the two and having people recognize that even these gangbangers and drug dealers and other people that we think are morally suspect are also very human, deserving of our compassion, deserving of our sympathetic identification, and shouldn't be treated as so much toxic human waste to be dumped and warehoused and forgotten. Uh, I saw a documentary called The 13th. Yes. I'm sure you're very aware of it. Yes. I highly recommend everyone yes. see it. Yes. Uh, and in it, it takes you through this timeline of from slavery to today. Uh, and there's a point in the timeline when they talk about in the, the 80s and 90s, the Democrats were just getting their butts kicked by Republicans in election after election until they started taking tough on crime right. as one of their main issues. And it was That's the right. Clinton administration that started implementing a lot of these tough on crime laws. Yes. Um, can you take me to that point in time and, yes. and what shifted there and what that has led to today? Oh, absolutely. The big turning point was the 1988 election between George Bush Sr. and Michael Dukakis. Who, uh, Sr. was running as a Republican, Michael Dukakis as a Democrat, and George Bush Sr. was able to trot out the infamous Willie Horton ad in which he had a black convict who had, was on work furlough, had been released from prison as part of a work furlough program, um, going through a revolving door, and while Willie Horton was out, he violently assaulted, raped a white woman. And um, George Bush was able to say, see what the Democrats have brought you? See what their soft-on-crime approach gets you? And he won that election, and Democrats after that said, we cannot let 
the Republicans beat us on this crime issue, on this law and order issue. It's too politically charged. It's too compelling politically. So we're going to take that issue away from them. And Clinton decided that I'm going to show you that I can be just as tough on crime as you can be as the Republicans. I mean, people like Joe Biden were saying, oh, you know, yeah, we haven't been tough enough. We got to be even tougher. So Clinton, not, you know, Clinton did a lot of things that were um, more Republican-like than Democrat-like. He got rid of welfare, that famous FDR program, that social safety net program, welfare as we know it. He, he got rid of that. He um, supported NAFTA and went after the unions, undermined the unions. But especially when it came to crime and punishment, he was able to take stands and have legislate and supported legislation that, that deepened the plight of uh, blacks when it came to mass incarceration. And so as a result, a lot of people uh, on the left ran away from the crime issue and started supporting more punitive sanctions, more draconian approaches, three strikes and you're out. All, a, 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 lot of, um, a, a lot of folks just threw anyone who could be characterized as a criminal under the bus. Um, and that continued for at least Oh, at least until relatively recently, you know, through the 90s, through the 80s, 90s, through the 80s, we know that was the Reagan era. Through the 90s, you have Clinton. Through the aughts, you know, people were still running away from the crime issue on the left and, and trying to demonize all criminals and supporting harsher punishments for them. With Michelle Alexander's book, you saw, uh, uh, you saw a glimmer of light because people started to see mass incarceration as a civil rights issue for, the, for one of the first times, especially white liberals who hadn't seen mass incarceration as a civil rights issue. They thought civil rights issues were like affirmative action or civil rights issues were like segregation or maybe even voting rights, but not crime and punishment, not mass incarceration. But when you go from 300,000 people incarcerated in the early 80s to 2.2 million, people started saying, whoa, maybe we do have a serious civil rights issue here, but grossly disproportionate number of these new inmates are black, which they were. So a lot of white liberals started to see that criminal, that blame and punishment and the way we were doing it was a civil rights issue as well. Then the Black Lives Matter movement came on strong and made the case for looking out for police misconduct and also fighting mass incarceration. To the point now, you have a lot of progressive prosecutors now running for office up in San Francisco. They just got a new DA who ran on a progressive prosecutor platform. Larry, um, um, Larry Krasner the, is the new DA for Philadelphia. I've had him to the law school, USC, this year and last. Here's how, here's how Larry Krasner um, illustrates the sea change in how ordinary Americans think about crime and punishment, how, different they th how differently they think about it now than they did even five or ten years ago. Larry Krasner got 75% of the voters of Philadelphia to elect him to what is probably the most transformative, he's probably the most transformative politician elected to an executive type position in the last 50 years. He got 75% of the people of Philadelphia to vote for a prosecutor who had never prosecuted a case in his life, had only been a public defender and then a defense attorney, and ran on the following platform, in cash bail, address police misconduct, and in mass incarceration. 
as and he and, and, and now he is the head DA, has an office of over 600, 300 prosecutors beneath him. Right. Um, who, who rather respond to his his uh, um, his his leadership. And there have been prosecutors along his same lines in the same mold up in Boston, um, in St. Louis, in Chicago, now in San Francisco. And we're getting ready to have a major election here in L.A. now in 2020. Jackie Lacey, a black woman who's been the D.A. for two terms now, a total getting ready to go on eight years. But she's from the traditional prosecution mode, the lock them up and throw away the key mode. And we're going to see if she can be unseated by a progressive prosecutor. Here's how she made her bones. Here's how we used to think about things just five or ten years ago, right? One of the cases that they report in the L.A. Weekly that she tried involved an 18-year-old black kid who went into an unoccupied car and took a cell phone from its back seat. Unoccupied car. 18. When he was 16, he had two prior purse snatching convictions. She got 25 to life for that 18-year-old black kid, right? When the judge, in a rare feat of judicial intervention, says, this shocks my judicial conscience after he'd been, after a while, he said, I'm going to try, I'm going to knock this down to the seven years that you offered him, which is still draconian for a, a, a cell phone from an unoccupied car. She objected. So that was the mentality of prosecutors as little as five or 10 years ago, and many still today. And, and what is changing is the voters are starting to change. The voters put Larry Krasner in that office. Voters have put these progressive prosecutors in San Francisco in office. And we're going to see if next year voters in L.A. County are going to say, we've had enough of that kind of draconian, punitive, lock them up and throw away the key, law and order approach. And we, start, we need to start treating these people as humans, not just toxic human waste. And we got to start recognizing that hurt people hurt people. And that the, we and, and once we start to do that, and, and it's wasteful. You know, I was I was at a dinner with Newt Gingrich late um, recently up at USC, and he was pointing out that a lot of people on the right are starting to resist mass incarceration because they're just saying they're not coming necessarily from the standpoint of compassion, but from the standpoint of fiscal responsibility. They're saying $50,000 a year. So you're going to take that kid who took that cell phone from that unoccupied car and we're going to have to spend forty, fifty thousand $50,000 a year for 25 years to life on him? How much is that costing us to, to put away somebody like that? It's just fiscally irresponsible. Um, a lot of people on the right supported the First Steps Act and uh, the federal act that said we need to knock a lot of uh, uh, these felonies down to misdemeanors and start treating people more humanely. That was bipartisan. So uh, right now we're at a point in time historically in which a lot of Americans of all political stripes are recognizing that the way we've been going at things, trying to arrest our way out of our social problems, isn't going, isn't working and we need to try something new. Um. Here, here. Uh, who are who benefits from this current system? Um, and you know, to, to your point, also, I, I really agree that the tide is shifting. Just recently, you had Tulsi Gabbard on a debate yeah. call out Kamala Harris for yeah. tough on crime prosecution, yeah. which was the arrow that shot her in, in her yes. Achilles heel. Yes, really. Yes. I mean, and that's that wouldn't have happened if the public debate hadn't changed so much. That's right. The Overton window has shifted. You know, what used to you couldn't say five or 10 years ago, 
publicly you can say now. And that's a prime example. Uh, Kamala Harris has an albatross around her neck. She, just like um, Jackie Lacey, was a traditional law and order, lock them up kind of prosecutor. You know, when she was a line prosecutor, when she was the head prosecutor of San Francisco, and then as the, uh, um, when she was the attorney general for California, she would not go after corrupt cops. She would not go after even corrupt DAs. She supported things like truancy, making truancy a crime for the parents of the truants and threatening the parents with jail time. And some of them, contrary to claims that they nobody was prosecuted under those laws, they were. So she now has to deal with this uh, history. And rather than dealing with it frankly and forthrightly and saying, well, yeah, I did that. It was a mistake. I've learned I've, I've changed my ways. She's trying to deny her own record. She's trying to deny that she was actually that person. But we have her on, we have the thanks to videos and, and social media, we can see her parading back and forth in front of stages and making these very draconian noises that are pro, you know, carceral state noises. So she's dealing with that. Right, and, and it kind of alludes to what we were talking about earlier in terms of reconciliation, yes. right? We don't want to reconcile our own past racism. Yes. It's, and it, which is just such a flawed way of thinking about life, that you were born perfect and that you're never going to make any mistakes. Yes. And that as a society, we should never forgive you. It's like it's, all, it's kind of flipped in a weird way. Yes. And, and a lot of people would say that her, tricone, her, her kind of punitive approach to criminals wasn't racist because she's a black woman. You know, they say the same thing about Jackie Lacey. Well, she's a black woman, so how could she be racist? Well, that's where the politics of respectability kicks in. Even within the black community, you have black folk who try to distinguish between good Negroes and bad. And Chris Rock is the one who said, I love black people, I hate niggas, right? That's a black person. And that's because you're black doesn't mean you can't have any black bias in you, especially when it comes to poor blacks, because the fact of the matter is the vast majority of blacks who are caught up in the criminal justice system are from truly disadvantaged black backgrounds, the vast majority. Um, So what Chris Rock was really saying wasn't just that I hate, I love black people, I hate N-words, I hate black criminals. What he was really saying was, I love disproportionately middle-class blacks, and I hate disproportionately truly advantaged blacks. That's what he was really saying, because that's how the numbers break down, right? What you have is a moral, is really a rather an economic distinction masquerading as a moral distinction. You know, good Negro, bad Negro, criminals, non-criminals, law-abiding versus you know, law breaking, that's really a, a, a distinction that runs very much along class lines, right? And so it is really what looks like a moral distinction, but underneath is a class driven distinction. And once you see the classism, the ugly class bigotry that really drives that moral distinction, you should recoil. And hopefully, and I think more and more Americans are starting to see that. That's why they're electing these progressive prosecutors. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about who benefits from the status quo. Uh, In the MOFAs this year, we won't tell you the winners, but the the three nominees that we have are 
uh, Geo Group, which is one of the largest private prisons companies in America. Um, most of the immigration detention centers are created by Geo Group. They get these big state contracts to be able to lock people up. There's a lot of mandatory bed fills that they have, so they really are incentivized to fill those beds. Um, they are one of the main sponsors of ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, which writes legislation. They wrote mandatory minimum sentences for nonviolent drug offenses. Um, they wrote uh, the um, stand your ground laws, um, which then they hand off to legislate, um, legislative uh, candidates who then implement those laws. Uh, and then the third is uh, Securus Technologies, which um, everyone should check out the, the bit that John Oliver did to expose this. So Securus is the telecommunications company of um, a lot of prisons, and they will charge prisoners and their families exorbitant amounts for calls. Um, so a huge amount of prisoners who are making you know, less than a dollar a day uh, from labor are then charged these huge amounts just to connect with loved ones. So there are, there are industries at play that are benefiting from mass incarceration. Um, or maybe just they, you know, these are industries that were responding to the tide 20 years ago and figuring out how they could make a buck on it. Can you tell me a little bit about who is still benefiting from the status quo? Yeah, you put your finger right on some of the main beneficiaries right off the bat. Um, Good, we've been, we've been yeah, doing our research. We yeah, no, no doubt. No, that was thorough. That you, you really have. And, and um, certainly the, the private prison industrial complex is a problem. Um, and they are profiting from the misery of people in some of their contracts, in fact, involve provisions that require their beds to stay that require their beds to stay full and so there's an, they incentivize uh, their contracting partners to arrest enough people to keep their beds full so certainly they are a, a big time profiter profiteers from mass incarceration but I will correct and I put them right at the top of the list one of the top of the list folks but I will note this we had the mass incarceration problem kick off well before private prisons, right? We, um, we, even before you get to private prisons, which are, you know, greedy vultures, no doubt about it, um, you had still a lot of people profiting from locking people up in the public sector. You know, public correctional officers, correctional officers make a lot of money. They have one of the most powerful unions in California. They, may, they, they support a lot of the legislation that keeps people locked up and locked up for longer and longer periods of time. So even the, the, the public sector is, is dipping in the, 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 the kitty and making money off human misery and locking more and more people up. So that's certainly one of the, one of the big beneficiaries of mass incarceration. And everyone else you name too, the people who are charging people exorbitant rates just to talk to their loved ones. And we know that most of these people are going to get out at some point. When they get out, you want them not to be recidivists. You don't want them to go right back in. You, want them, you don't want them to go out on the street and do something else that's a crime and it's going to harm someone. You reduce the chance is that they'll do that if they can stay connected with people in their community, if they can maintain ties. But when you start to make it in, uh, um, too expensive for them to be able to maintain those ties, you're increasing the chances of more misery. And so these people are not only profiting on the misery of incarceration, but they're increasing the dangerousness in our streets. They're, they're making us less safe by reducing the ability for people to maintain their, their bonds and ties. 
And uh, and the the middle person you named was it Alec? Alec, yeah. Yeah, you know the 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 legislative arm of all of this, right? Um, what we are starting to recognize is that the per, perhaps the most important person driving mass incarceration in the criminal justice system is the prosecutor because they have so much discretion, you know. And um, as John Pfaff pointed out in his book Locked In, uh, we went from in the early '80s um, prosecutors um, charging about one out of three criminals that came before them or people who were rather not criminals, people who were alleged criminals charged with criminal activity. They were charged, they were charging about one out of three of them with a felony to charging roughly two out of three of a felony with a felony by the late eighties and through the nineties. And you just do the math on that from one out of three to two out of three and you have the boom, the explosion in prison population. So um, DAs are really at the heart of, uh, of driving mass incarceration, but not far behind them are the legislators, are those who are pushing for harsher legislation because they give the DAs these extra hammers, these extra tools, mandatory minimums. And those DAs use those kinds of threats of mandatory minimums, 25 to life, three strikes you're out. They use those new tools as cudgels to bludgeon defendants with and to compel them to cop pleas, for example, and not to risk going to trial because if you risk going to trial, we'll do to you what Jackie Lacey did to that 18-year-old kid. We'll get 25 to life for taking that cell phone from that unoccupied uh, unoccupied car um, if you dare stand on your rights, you know, and try to avoid uh, the mandatory minimums or what have you. So uh, Alec and those kinds of legislative arms are, are, are big time beneficiaries. Some rural communities are big time beneficiaries because they have prisons out there. A lot of times they put them out in rural communities and that be, they become the main source of employment or one of the big employers in that, in that community. And so all of the, the, the restaurants and the hotels and the, 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 the homes build up around those, those prisons and the, the, those communities become big beneficiaries. So um, mass incarceration is like a big social, if you will, teat that a lot of people are at that, at that nipple sucking away, trying to get their, um, where, the wherewithal to, to, um, and to, to fill their coffers and, and to make their lives. So yeah, a lot of, uh, a, a lot of beneficiaries, a lot of mofos uh, in this area. And the United States is unique in this issue. Um, one out of four people locked up anywhere in the entire world is locked up here yes. in the U.S. Other countries take a different approach to yes. criminal justice. Are there any models that we can look to as a country right now to try and implement and move forward in a healthy way? Oh, absolutely. We had uh, the, the, um, some DAs from the U.S. traveled over to Europe uh, uh, this past summer. I was keeping up with them in social media on my Twitter account and then some other social media. And they were looking at how... Um, um, law enforcement people in prisons in Germany, for example, approach uh, prisoners in the Scandinavian countries, in Portugal, for example, where another place where there, there's hardly any drug criminalization, right? 
And they've been able to reduce the scourge of drug use without resorting to the punitive hammer of lock them up and throw away the key. There are other harm reduction strategies that you can employ. So, yeah, if you take a comparative analysis of how we approach blame and punishment versus how other nations, uh, you know, especially Western nations, modern Western nations approach crime and punishment, we're way out there as an outlier. We have become incredibly punitive. Um, and uh, in many countries, a 15-year sentence is just seen as, as an upper limit. You know, that's like, that's a long sentence. Not a lot of people get that. We hand out 25 to lives like, it, like they're candy in a Pez dispenser. We don't, we don't seem to think twice about, you know, uh, just throwing the book at, like I said, this 18-year-old this kid who took this cell phone, a, a, a lot of countries in, in, in Europe would be shocked and are shocked when, you're, when they're told that this is the, what kind of thing we're doing to our own citizens. So I, I, would, I would really uh, advise any, of your, any people listening to your podcast to look at some of the uh, comparative information on other countries and just to get some idea of how draconian we are. Because you may not, you know, sometimes fully recognize how far out there we are. Right. Um, in the documentary, The 13th, uh, they talk about how the 13th Amendment, which made slavery illegal, uh, was an amendment, but there is a little clause in there that said, except it's, I'm, I'm riffing here, but it's except if the person is yeah. lawfully convicted of a, cl a crime, yeah. which... You know, language is important, language is powerful, and when you yes. make the statement, we have legalized slavery even yes. today, yes. that's a powerful thing to reconcile. Yes. Um, can you tell me a little bit about the workforce within prisons and how yes. that system operates? Yes, it is obscene when you think about it that we have a grossly disproportionate number of the people who are in prison are black, and we are continuing to say it's okay to keep these people who are disproportionately black in the status of slaves. And um, we sh that should create a lot of cognitive dissonance in us, a lot of discomfort in us. And when we look at California, for example, recently we've had these fires, these wildfires that have been raging. You know a lot of the people fighting those fires are inmates, are themselves prisoners who are the cheapest labor that they can, you can possibly find. They put them out there on the front lines um, of the fires to fight them and expose them their lives, their lungs to all kinds of problems. And then once they get out of prison, they can't even get those jobs as firefighters or, or, or as um, first responders because of their criminal, their, their criminal records. So, yeah, we... Uh, and uh, by the way, that's one of the things Kamala Harris was resisting, letting too many prisoners go. She said, well, we need them for the cheap labor, you know, to do things like fighting fires and the like. So we should feel a lot of discomfort thinking that, we're made, that we've allowed a loophole in our laws that keeps some of our citizens as slaves. Like when Chris Rock said, I love black people and I hate niggas, niggas uh, n that N-word is, uh, is about as ugly, vile, and vicious a word as we have in the English language. There's really, that's why it's so incendiary. That's why people avoid it, and they ought to. 
You know, I feel uncomfortable uttering it, but I have to in order to drive home how it is we are otherizing people once we criminalize them. But slave is right up there with it. Slave, you can't, you're not looking at the humanity in a person if you're viewing them as a slave, just like you're not looking at the humanity in a person if you're looking at them as an N-word. And um, we need to, if we really want to live up to the higher angels of our nature, wrap our arms around the country that we're living in, the flag that flies above it on the, on the flagpoles, we need to say that, that enough of this, that we are going to not condemn a large populations of our citizens to slave status or to niggardom, if you will, right? But rather, we're going to recognize that all of us are human, frail, imperfect, capable of making horrible mistakes, but also capable of redemption, capable of restoration, capable of reconciliation. Here, let me give you one quick example because, and I I don't mean to get, you know, to go off into too much of a kind of religious direction here, but I have a lot of friends who are Christians. We, you know, we're getting ready to celebrate Christmas pretty soon coming on here. It's a national holiday. You know, you have people on certain uh, station saying, say Merry Christmas, don't just say Merry, Happy Holidays, you know. So a lot of people wrap their arms around, you know, their, their Christian faith. And, and, and so I want to talk to some of those people. If you're secular, you can sit this one out for now. I can come back and get you when we talk about moral luck. But for right now, let me just talk about, um, because I grew up as my mom was Catholic, my, my grandmother's side, on my dad's side were Baptists. So, um, I was talking to a, a friend um, who's a devout Christian uh, some years back when I did a play called Race, Rap, and Redemption. And the call of the question of my play, I put it on in USC. We had 1,100 students. Um, and the call of the question was for the play was, should we pour liquor for Stanley Tukey Williams? Stanley Tukey Williams had just been put to death by Don Arnold Schwarzenegger. Don Arnold Schwarzenegger denied his, uh, his plea for um, a stay of execution on the ground that Stanley Tukey Williams had not achieved personal redemption. That's what he, that was a criterion that he used, no personal redemption. Now, Stanley Tukey Williams was a bad actor at one point, very bad actor. He co-founded the Crips, all right, and he killed people with his own hands. He was a bad actor, okay? But he'd spent over 20 years on death row. He'd written books. He, you know, he... He, um, he wrote children's books, right? Children's books. Right. Yes. Yeah, you remember that? Yeah. Children's books. And, and had made uh, and, and argued against gang involvement and tried to turn, his, uh, turn other people away from gangs and that sort of thing. Anyway, I was talking to her, my friend, uh, this devout uh, Christian Catholic, about his death and I, that I was going to put on this play. Um, uh, in support of him, and she said, "Well, I, I can't, I can't co-sign that. I can't, and I don't. I, I think he does deserve the death penalty. And you know, uh, Governor Newsom has put a moratorium on the death penalty in California. Although Jackie Lacey, as a DA for LA County, continues to push for the death penalty, and in fact, all the people she's put on death row while she's been at the DA, all of them are people of color, not one white person. But anyway." This, um, this friend of mine said, well, I kind of think he deserves the death penalty. I said, okay, well, what do you think the appropriate penal fate would be then for a person who killed not just hundreds, but thousands of men, women, and children for no other reason than they 
had a belief system that he thought was wrong. Um, it, what do you think would be appropriate penal fate for him? And she said, oh, that's easy. Off with his head. Death, of course. I said, well, you know, the person I just described was Paul. Before he was Paul, he was Saul. What was Saul on the road to Damascus to do before he had his epiphany? He was on the road to Damascus to kill some more innocent Christians, some more innocent men, women, and children who were Christians. So if we're, if, if, and if we don't have Paul, you don't have the New Testament because Paul's the one who went around and gathered Luke and Matthew and John, everybody together to write the gospel, right? To write the scriptures. So if the penal fate that you think is appropriate for somebody like Stanley Tukey was applied to Paul, you wouldn't even have this, this faith that you now profess, right? And so I think a lot of times when Christians that I've talked to hear that, it gives them some pause. They have to think, you know, well, wait a minute. You know, the New Testament really is about redemption. Here's, what, here's, the, here's the kind of irony, uh, Kyle, that I see on a regular basis when I go into churches. On Sunday mornings, I hear ministers preaching reconciliation, redemption, restoration, then Monday through Saturday, the, 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 the people in, in the pews go back to retribution, retaliation, and revenge. And then Sunday, re redemption, reconciliation, restoration. It's like we're schizophrenic. What, what they should be trying to do is take Sunday and spread it through the week. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday should be the same. Let's approach our fellow people through that, through, through you know, efforts toward reconciliation, restoration, and recognition of their capacity for redemption, right? Especially in these, uh, in, in this thirst for blood we have when it comes to the death penalty, but even more generally, you know. Um, so I get to that same point with moral luck when I, on a secular basis, you know. If you don't want to talk about it in terms of, uh, of, of, of you know, kind of, uh, Theism. Let's talk about it in terms of how it is that we have the moral, make the moral judgments we have, uh, that we do. Um, a shocking number of our moral judgments turn on luck. The people we condemn or don't. So, for example, um, and I teach this in my torts class and my criminal law class. Hundreds of thousands of people every day, they're, they're, when they're behind the wheel of their car driving, they are doing things like not keeping a proper lookout, messing with their navigation, messing with their radio, messing with somebody in the back seat, putting on makeup, chomping on something they got at the drive through not keeping a proper lookout, speeding 5, 10, 20 miles over the speed limit, up the 110 or the 10. Hundreds of thousands of people a day. And most of them get home at the end of the day and sit down and without incident and don't think of themselves as bad people, don't suffer any compunction or, or crisis of conscience. But occasionally, one of those people, while they're keeping, not keeping a proper lookout, will have a kid dart in front of their car. And they won't stop in time. They'll hit that kid or the pedestrian or another car and cause the death of somebody. And all of a sudden, for doing the same thing that 100,000 other people did on the same day, they go from being just another Joe or Jane to being somebody guilty of manslaughter who's looking, for up, uh, looking at up to six years for vehicular homicide. And what, how are they morally distinguishable from the people who didn't? There's no difference between them. The only difference between them and the people who got home and are eating without any pangs of conscience is 
a factor over which they had no control. Neither them or the other people had any control. Namely, a kid darting out out in front of their car or, you know, another car darting out in front of them. And so really what we said is we're going to condemn you on the basis of luck. You know, that's that's like flipping a coin and saying heads, you're good, tails, you're bad, heads, you're wicked. Tales, you're virtuous, right? That's moral luck. And, and morally, we're all at the mercy of luck. And I, go through, I can go through many more examples like that. You know, the phenomenon of moral luck is ubiquitous. It's all over the place. And it should give us some pause. It should make us epistemically humility. It should give us epistemic humility. It should make us a little less certain about uh, our moral judgments about our righteous condemnation of others when we recognize that a lot of what we blame people for are factors over which they have no control. Morally, we're all at the mercy of luck. We're nothing but a tissue of contingencies. The self is nothing but a tissue of contingencies a lot of times. Where you, what family you happen to grow up in. You know, like with Stanley Tukey Williams, in, in my play, I said, one of the acts in my play, I had um, Lula Washington Dance Company do an Alvin Ailey-style dance to Tupac Shakur's Brenda's Got a Baby. And in Tupac's song, Brenda's Got a Baby, uh, it's about a 12-year-old who's molested. She's, she gets pregnant from the molestation. The, her family turns her, their back on her, and, um, and she winds up having to go out and, and turn to prostitution in order to support herself and her child. And the last couplet of the song by Tupac is, prostitute found slain and Brenda's her name. She had a baby. And I ask in the play, what if that baby she had was Stanley Tukey Williams? What if he comes out now and he goes into the foster system as so many prisoners wind up in and he's cigarette burns, molested. He's disciplined by being thrown in a car trunk and locked up for four and five hours at a time. You know, like really happens in some of these cases. And he comes out, yes, a vicious person, but he had no control in that vicious person he became. He was subjected to those external forces, right? He had no real control. How, how much can we really condemn him for being that person? How, how would you pass judgment on him? I'll just say, give you one more example, and because I know I'm talking a lot, but I want to get this point in. I take my students up to San Quentin. And we sit down with uh, Layla Steinberg in a microphone session. She's been doing this since she took Tupac up there from way back in the day. Um, And we sit down with mothers of murder victims and lifers without parole, lifers, and my students and um, the people in in microphone sessions. And this is how a typical session will go. The mothers will stand up and they'll say, this is my loved one who I lost to gangbangers or to some kind of criminal violence. Here is what he or she was doing. This is the life, and you see pictures of them when they're young, pictures of them in the band, pictures of them doing you know, student government stuff, and then they're dead. And she said, this ripped our heart out, it tore our family apart. And, and so she passed that around and she sits down. And then the prisoners, one of them will stand up and say, I killed somebody just like that. I tore a family up just like that. They'll spend the first half of their time talking about their victim and who their victim was and how that they caused the bereavement of their family. And then they'll spend the last half of their time saying, you know, the person who did that was a depraved person who killed that person. Let me tell you how I became that depraved person. 
and they'll go through how their foster care experiences, for example, very often they're almost always from truly disadvantaged backgrounds, living lives of abject poverty and going through all kinds of horrible experiences. And you come to see, again, hurt people hurt people. You come to see the humanity in this person who did a violent act. And, um, and we all just sit there a moment and pause. And, you know, I, I don't know what goes on there. I wouldn't call it healing. I would call it just a sobering moment of grace and recognition that, you know, this is who we are, that, and that we are all, in a, in a sense, collectively responsible for what happened to some of those victims because we allow those truly disadvantaged conditions to fester and allow those people to, to become those kinds of really callous people who went out and did those horrible acts. Oof, well said. Life is a series of binary choices. Yes. And you... Uh you know, it's a series of binary choices, and one of my favorite quotes is, um, what's the author's name? Alexander Sholznitsky. Yeah. The battle between good and evil lies not between states, countries, or political parties, but between every human heart. Yes. yes. And, I, and I think that that's uh, it's a powerful moment to be able to pause in. I'm uh, just in the last year or so, I've gotten more and more into meditation, and um, it's through an app uh, that I use called Waking Up. Uh, it's by a philosopher and meditative guide named Sam Harris. And one of the meditations in it is um, called Metta or loving kindness meditation where you picture a person um, in your life. This is, this could just be a neutral person and you picture them getting everything that they want. You actually visualize their face radiantly happy and you let the feeling that you want them to be happy kind of wash over you. And it feels really good. And then you take that to another person. This could be a person who you have a really a difficult time with. You know, someone who annoys you. And you focus loving kindness on them. And then the final... And, and that can be kind of hard sometimes, right? Because you'll have these feelings like, no, fuck that person. Like, you know, you have those, those yes. little pings of... Yes. Maybe, maybe it's not vengeance, but just annoyance. But you see... For me, I've been able to see that slippery slope of annoyance and how that could easily turn to vengeance or friendliness and that how that could turn to love and then the final object of the meditation is to turn it back on yourself and acknowledge that the act of meditating is in and of itself an act of loving kindness mm. and then you learn mm. uh, I mean just speaking personally like I'm very hard on myself I'm mm. super ambitious and the conversation in my own head can sometimes be meaner than it can be to anyone else but I find that I'm, I will the harder I am on myself, the more easy it is to be hard on other people. I love that. I love that, Kyle. And I think that's so important now for more people to get a handle on, whereas we're looking at, um, even on my own campus, USC, we have a lot of students who are suffering from a lot of anxiety, anxiety attacks. Um, one out of five students on my campus, like other campuses, UCLA, um, campuses all over the nation, one out of five students are suffering from mental illness challenges, clinically diagnosable mental illness challenges, one out of five. And a lot of them have to do with anxiety. 40 million Americans are wrestling with serious attacks of anxiety and anxiety disorders, right? And so being able to 
find serenity, calm, and peace in the face of all of the frustrations that we're running into day in, day out. When, as somebody who, who does a lot of Black Lives Matter work, I have to look at a lot of unarmed black people being shot by officers all the time and abused by the criminal justice system all the time. And that can be traumatizing, right? So we're all dealing with lots of different traumas in our lives, lots of sources of anxiety. And that can be one of the most important interventions that we can really think of or advise, suggest people undertake. And that is self-care of, a, of that kind of spiritual nature that will help us soothe some of this rampant anxiety that living in America in 2019 seems to stoke and fuel. So I really love to hear you saying that. I think I hope more people hear you talking about that because we are all struggling with a lot of that. And many of us are struggling with mental illnesses as a, as a result, you know, uh, panic attacks and anxiety attacks that are nearly disabling. And only if we can do some of that meditation, calming, quieting, forgiving, that's the hard thing, forgiving others, forgiving our enemies, you know, and forgiving ourselves. Yeah. And not taking on the energy that you're trying to fight. Yeah. We talked before this conversation about how you know, I, I'm prepping for the MOFAs as a producer and I'm talking with 50 people a day and it's like running a business and, and how easy it is to slip into uh, little white lies how easy it is to slip into just being a little less ethical than I'd like to be and how dangerous it is to try and fight that power, that energy while, you know, Martin Luther King said it, what, what was, what was his quote? Uh, hate cannot drown out hate. That's right. Only love can do that. That's it. Right. But, and, and, you know, that you, you hear about that quote, but then to really experience, all right, how am I operating in the world? Um, and to feel that and notice that is, uh, it's a project in and of itself. There's the project of yes. fixing the system and then there's the project of yourself. Yes. It's mindfulness. It's right. recognizing the value of mindfulness, the value of meditation, the value of staying in the moment, the value of not regretting, living with a lot of bony regrets about the past and all of these anxieties and worries and frets about the future. You know, we're more and more, even on my own campus at SC, and I know campuses all over the country are starting to incorporate mindfulness into their, you know, into their curriculums oftentimes, into their advice to students and their students' activities, because we are spiritually troubled. We are, as, 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 you know, in this kind of really hyped up world that we live in. And so I, I just really, it's heartening for me to hear you um, spreading that message. And I hope that you can spread it more. It's so crucial, cru critical right now. Yeah. Well, it's, it's either that or you handle your anxiety by trying to numb it yes. with some kind of substance, yes. which then gets you into this whole system right here. But the, as, as we've talked about, um, there's a very deeply spiritual aspect to the system reflecting our own consciousness. That's it. What are some, I, I'm, we can wrap up here right now. Um, I want to be respectful of your time. What, um, what are some uh, um, materials that you recommend people check out if they want to learn more about this? Um, there's obviously your book coming out yeah. that we want to recommend. My, but, my, my book will be coming out in, uh, at the end of the summer in 2020, uh, Unsayable Words, Unforgivable Crimes. 
you know what the unsayable word is already that I use as a as a tool to talk about unforgivable crimes and how we can perhaps find some way to allow for redemption for those who've engaged in even violent acts. Um, uh, you know, I, um, yeah. The 13th is good. I, 13th I outstanding. Yeah. 13th outstanding. Uh, Nate um, Parker has a film coming out soon. Um, he, uh, he had a film called um, Birth of a Nation about Nat Turner. Uh, didn't get it, it, it didn't get as much play as I think it deserved, but he has another one coming out called American Skin, which is very interesting and it has to do with a father who loses a son to police misconduct. Um, yeah, there there are a lot of uh, you know if I start naming some books, I feel that I leave so many yeah. out. If I just go down the the, the book route, um, you know, one of my early books was Negrophobia and Reasonable Racism: The Hidden Cost of Being Black in America. Um, and, you know, it resonates with a lot of the issues that people are still going through today. Um, but these conversations they are the most important thing. I think getting together with folks like this, you know, and, and probing difficult conversations, difficult subjects, and doing it in a way that is full of compassion and care and concern for even those that we have a hard time finding a way to forgive because, you know, um, my dad used to say, doubt may give your dinner a funny taste, but it's the absence of doubt that goes out and kills. It's the absence of doubt that gets somebody to strap a bomb on their back and walk into the middle of a crowd. It's that unshakable, unflappable certainty that you know what's right, that you have a monopoly on the gospel truth that goes out and kills. And that's not epistemic humility. You know, having humility about what you actually know or can know and therefore not being as judgmental and self-righteous in your judgment of others. That's kind of what my work has been aimed at more than anything else. And so, you know, any conversations like this that give us a chance to explore the, our own human frailty, that we're all broken, we're all seeking healing, we're all trying to come up, and we can all use one another as ways to, to heal some of our own brokenness. Here, here. Well, I'd say if, you, if that's where you're aiming at, you're hitting right on target. Um, where is there a place where people can get in touch with you? Yes, well, jodyarmor.com is going to be about my book. That's where you, jodyarmor.com. J-O-D-Y-A-R-M-O-U-R. That's it. Jodyarmor.com is where information about my upcoming book, uh, forthcoming book is going to be. My Twitter handle is niggatheory, at niggatheory, N-I-G-G-A-T-H-E-O-R-Y. Um, and... Otherwise, uh, yeah, that, I, I keep uh, pretty much things up to date on that. On that. Right. Well, hey, man, I've done uh, about 190 podcasts, and this is one of my favorite. Thank you. So thank you very much, both for the work that you're doing and the work that you do to be able to articulate um, these kinds of issues. Uh, as a lover of language myself, I have a deep appreciation for someone like yourself who has done that kind of digging in to try and find the right words to be able to express these tough issues. Thank you, Kyle. I appreciate the opportunity. That's our show. I'm going to play out a song called Stand Still by the Getaway Dogs. These guys listened to the podcast and they sent me some music. If you are a musician, you want to send me some music, email it to info at kyle.surf. You can also send me those voice memos. Where are you right now? Who are you with? What are you thinking about? Bust out your phone and just 
don't overthink it. Just send it to me like you're sending me a little voice memo about some details about where you are. And uh, email to info at Surf, and I'll play it at the beginning of the show. Once again, thank you very, very much to Santa Cruz Medicinals for sponsoring each and every one of these podcasts. Go to scmedicinals.com, type in the code name Kyle10 to get 10% off all of their products, including their CBD tincture, which helps me sleep at night. Also, big thanks to Mudwater for letting me record uh, at their offices. And thanks to everyone who donates to this podcast on Patreon. I really appreciate it. This is a very minimally sponsored show, uh, and it helps keep it going. So even just the equivalent of a cup of coffee, go to go to my website, kyle.surf, click on the Patreon donate thing, and uh, if you like it, I appreciate it. Um, if you don't have the extra cash, just keep listening. Go out and give someone a high five. Be a good person. Give the show a rating on iTunes. That helps also. Uh, helps me get more good guests for you. And with that, I hope to see you all at the Motherfucker Awards. Sit back, relax, and enjoy this song called Stand Still by the Getaway Dogs. Can you remember it all like the rise and the fall of the sea? 